Welcome to the Ponder a New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myles, and in this season, we're thinking about the gap between Sunday and Monday, between faith and daily life, looking at the parables of Matthew's Gospel. And what really shapes this podcast is that there is now a war between Hamas and Israel that's going on. And that definitely sort of puts into tension the world of peace and love we think Jesus talks about and the reality of war and violence that we experience. But when you get to this parable that we're going to look at today, the king who represents God seems to condone violence, if not even order it. And the God we meet in this parable seems a whole lot more like a a Middle Eastern dictator who's seeking retaliation and tribal customs than the God I've come to know in Jesus. So this podcast will look at this parable, think about violence in life, violence in the Bible, violence again in our own daily lives, in our Monday through Saturday, and then the second half will kind of take a step back and think about some Bible tools when we come to really hard passages like this. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets, gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. When I was 10 years old, the Berlin Wall fell. And this, for me, meant my youth was, was in an era of a confidence in democracy and capitalism to bring peace and prosperity, that we were entering a new age of great technological growth that would alleviate sort of human sufferings. Billions of people, literally a billion people around the world were lifted out of poverty sort of in my teenage years. Uh, And so there was this, again, this real sense that we had overcome the challenges, the, the breakdowns, the adversity, the wars of the 20th century. In many ways, 9-11 sort of really changed this sort of hopeful glow and then prolonged war in Afghanistan. Now sort of the war in Russia and Ukraine and tanks again rolling in Europe and missiles being fired, human refugees everywhere. And then for some reason, though, this last weekend, this 
this attack by Hamas, this brutal terror uh, and torture that they inflicted on Israelites in response to the really the apartheid policies of Israel over time. Now just becoming justification for both sides for such brutality. And I'm realizing that the ways of the 20th century, really the ways of humans to have violence uh, be, be a justified, be a solution, uh, is there. Today we have a parable that includes violence, that includes actually rather senseless violence. The king sent messengers to, to invite people, and some of them were killed, murdered, senselessly. And the king, in response, decides to send out his attendants to do away with them. So this story both has an element of human violence against each other and also God-justified violence. I'm going to pick up the God-justified violence a little bit, but for now I just want to focus on that human-on-human violence. And I'm curious, well, as Americans, we generally have a fairly high living standard, and we've benefited greatly from the last 30 years of technological progress. However, I think many of us feel that we live in a world that does have violence in it, that we still wrestle with tribalism. And I'm curious, what have been the events that have really if you're like me, kind of deflated you or kind of rocked you to your core to say, wow, like we really do live in a world in which um, there is violence and humans resort to violence, both as a measure of retaliation and as a proposed solution. What bothers me or frustrates me, has kept me up at night this week about this passage, though, isn't the human on human violence but rather that the king, who clearly represents God here, ordains, commands violence, that, um, that the murderers be punished and that their city even be burned. So what do you think? Does God ordain violence? This is one parable, and we might not want to read too much into one parable, Although it is striking that it is in the New Testament, I think we could find examples in the Old Testament where God seems to uh, order the people to attack each other, uh, for the Israelites to attack and to defend themselves and even conquer. There's also uh, images in the book of Revelation that ultimately uh, evil will be destroyed, that there is no... um, it's not gory. It's not sort of uh, Hollywood sort of, uh, you know, sort of violence porn. But th- there is a way in, in which, yeah, in the end, it seems like um, the evil is, is destroyed. On the other hand, though, uh, Jesus himself tells us to turn the other cheek. And Jesus himself um, suffers the cross and... Jesus himself admonishes the disciple, likely Peter, who cuts off the ear, heals, in fact, at that point. 
And there's no evidence that in the New Testament after the resurrection that, that Jesus or the followers of Jesus seek any kind of retribution or revenge for Jesus' death. So I want to suggest that, that sort of there are both strands in the Bible of a God who is willing, seems ready, able, necessary even to command and ordain violence. And another sense that there um, is a way of peace, a way of nonviolence. And I'm just curious, which of, which of those do you resonate and, and feel more comfortable with? How do you hold those both together? Uh, I want to uh, move really to the personal now and think about how you in your life deal with people who have hurt you. Uh, how do you deal with people whom you would like have an instinct for revenge? And uh, this might be, for example, uh, a coworker. It could be a sibling, could be a neighbor who really has hurt you. And um, what has happened in the cases where you have sought some sort of escalation or revenge? Do you ever uh, regret not standing up for yourself more because you feel like it invited more, more violence towards yourself or others? One of the things that has become quite talked about today that wasn't talked about 30 years ago was bullying. I was just talking to another parent about how we had been on sort of middle school soccer teams and had had this really negative experience being bullied, um, but this person's child was not, and we wondered if it actually was just all the sort of coaching and training they've done about bullying over the years and how to stand up to bullies. And at what level... Um, does does the bully need to be stood up to when your kids or grandchildren or again when somebody's picking on somebody how do you know when to turn the other cheek and when to stand up for yourself and others lest there be more violence perhaps rather than solve the theological problem that i've presented about god ordaining violence or not I tend, again, to lean uh, much more heavily towards peace and, and turn their cheek. But as Ecclesiastes says, for everything under heaven there is a season, a time for war, and a time for peace. And I really, again, want you to think about in your own life, how, how do you know when it's time to sort of uh, wage war, uh, to sort of seek retaliation in some way, or at least stand up to somebody, defend you or your house or your child or the kid who's getting beaten up at lunch, um, and, and, and wonder what conditions can you do that, what is too much, and what is the, when is a time then for, for peace and, and reconciliation. So what do we do with this story of violence in the New Testament here in these words of Jesus. And I'd actually like to spend a little bit of time in this half of the podcast less addressing the question of violence in Scripture. I, I tried to do that in a couple drafts of this podcast, and it just it proved too big of a topic. And, and more to kind of think a little bit, what do you do when you get to parts of the Bible that just don't feel right? They don't 
seem like that's the God that I know. And the intellectually um, lazy option is just to ignore it, right? Just to say, what well, I don't, you know, I don't take all the Bible literally or, or even some slightly nuanced version of, you know, that was written by somebody of a different culture in a different time and place. And it's, you know, not relevant for ours or that, you know, the authors are writing with such a, a cultural uh, bias. Well, I think it is important for us to understand the world that the Bible was written in, and that can give us some insight. So in this particular story, what's likely going on is that the writer of Matthew's gospel is incredibly shaped by not just the events of 33 AD, when Jesus Christ was crucified and was risen, but the events of 66 AD, when Jerusalem falls to Rome, and Rome burns down Jerusalem. And so in that context, what you see is the king invited everybody to the banquet of the sun. And it turns out that the sacrifice has been made. That's literally the word there for the fatted calf has been killed. It's literally the, the sacrifice has been made. And then there are people that go out to the byways and they try to find everybody and people aren't interested, i.e. the Jews that didn't convert, that didn't want to follow Christ. And so the king was mad. And in fact, they even hurt the apostles that went out. And so the king got mad and the king sent the Roman army in and they burned down the city. And then later people would show up who were the Sadducees who thought they were all doing the right thing, but they thought then that they get in, get in without Christ. And uh, so they were not wearing the right clothes. I mean, you could really interpret this through a very historical, um, critical lens. And that means you try to get behind the filter of, of what the culture uh, in that day was and, and really try to understand um, sort of the world behind the text, if you will. And, and again, I think there can be some really helpful stuff there. There's two problems. So there's a general problem and a specific problem. The general problem with that is that when you go about this avenue of trying to deal with scripture passages you don't like by turning to the social sciences for research on what words and patterns and cultures meant at that time, um, you end up kind of on a sifting sand where, where science is always learning more and therefore, well, this is what this word means or this is what that word means. Uh, when... That's what this word means in this generation. and last generation, the scholars were pretty sure the word meant something else. And you also run into the trouble that when you try to deconstruct their lens, you can't deconstruct your own. And, you know, in the 19th century, all these, you know, from 1850 to like 2000, all these scholars went through and tried to deconstruct and find the real Jesus behind sort of this historical lens. And, you know, it turns out that a bunch of 19th century liberal Protestant Northern European uh, professors ended up with a Jesus who remarkably sounded, acted, and like Northern European 20th century, 19th century liberal uh, professors. In other words, we, we all have our own biases and we try to undo the cultural framework in which it's in. To get behind that, we often end up just with our own blinders and, and unaware of them. In this case, though, we have the particular problem that even if we assume that we get the cultural context right, that um, this is a very sort of Jewish Christian um, 
perspective on what's happened in Jerusalem and uh, the, the Jewish Jews that didn't convert to uh, Christianity, it still leaves us with the theological question of a God who's ordaining violence. And we may again want to chalk it off to just that perspective, but still there. Another way that I think we can try to understand Bible passages we don't like is to put them in a broader historical perspective and say, look, you know, um, uh, really, sorry, by a biblical perspective, so to say, okay, how does this uh, fit in? Is this passage out of context? Are there other passages that are like it? Or is this really an outlier? And unfortunately, in this particular case, we discover that it's not an outlier that we again could find story after story, central stories like the Passover, where God sends the angel of death to kill the oldest sons. Um, again, the book of Revelation, where it seems, although I think you could really do a lot there and there's some powerful stuff there. Um, but you see throughout scripture, there's God and violence are never that far apart. Hmm. Another, so, so far we've thought about historical critical kind of get to the world behind the text to understand what's going on and kind of deconstruct that then and try to apply it back to real life and see what we want to carry over. Another way is to put in the whole biblical story and make sure that it sort of coheres with the rest of it. And in this case, I think it, it does. So another way you can think about what to do when you come to hard scriptures is to recognize that that story may be there for another person besides yourself or yourself at another time. I'm thinking about like the story of Hagar, who's this Egyptian woman who's banished um, and abused by her um, Sarah. And you think about race, ethnicity, all this stuff, domestic abuse. Uh, there's so much in that story. It's like, what's the Bible doing, including this? But if you've ever been somebody who's been um, sexually abused, domestic violence, received racism, received religious sort of bigotry, that story may be a story that you find great comfort that it's even part of scripture. And so uh, maybe this story is a reminder that um, the, the ones who hurt you, um, that that matters to God and that you're not in the eternal banquet going to be plagued by people who hurt you. And maybe for some that's just of a, a profound uh, comfort. So there is a way, again, in which Scripture sometimes it, it may not be speaking to us in our situation. Um, it, it may be a word that, that is really for somebody else at a different time in their life. For me, though, I always just try to throw Christ at a Bible passage. <laughs> and, you know, in this parable, it's like, well, where is Jesus? He's the Son, but the Son doesn't seem to be doing much. But if you start to think, okay, well, where is the Son in this parable? Well, first of all, you know, at the end of the parable, it talks about this person who doesn't have the right clothes, who, who needs clothes, and is thrown in prison. Well, three chapters later, Jesus says to people in Matthew 25 that when you feed the naked, sorry, when you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and visit people in prison, that you've done to me. And it's as if we had a play here. It's as if at the end, Jesus is going to say, I'm going to show up. The sun is going to show up again at the end with those who are kicked out of the banquet because he's with those who are in prison and he's with those who are, are hungry and without clothing. Likewise, there's, this, there's these murderers who, who deserve death 
for what they had done. And in the story of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of Matthew, there is a murderer, Barabbas. He's somebody who's incited violence, and he deserves to die. But it turns out that Jesus goes in his place and um, willingly goes in his place to suffer his death. And uh, we see Jesus here even um, for those who are, are to have their city burned to be murdered, that, uh, that Jesus goes in their place. So whereas Jesus in this parable, Jesus is, is with those who are suffering and Jesus is dying and rising for them and for their forgiveness. God's justice is, is there and will even execute death, but finally Jesus is in God, then brings forth God's mercy and the mercy of God will win out in the cross of Christ. I don't know if that solves this whole parable, but I just wanted to say, again, there's a couple ways you can look at a Bible passage that you don't like. And, and my sense is that, uh, again, the historical critical, thinking about it in the biblical story, thinking about it in the, this is for somebody else's story, or finally, really the story of, uh, of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That's often where we can sort of start to, to locate something good and something beautiful uh, for you in this passage.